Prepare for the most extraordinary event of your lifetime. An event that will forever alter the course of mankind and womankind. The next major turning point in the history of all civilization. Hi. Introducing the new Suzuki Samurai 4x4. The beginning of the universe was dull by comparison. The discovery of As a 15-year-old about to get his driver's license, there was nothing I wanted more than a little death trap of a Jeep called the Suzuki Samurai. And as it turns out, I have that in common with the first guest on my first podcast series entitled Spirit of 74. I know what you're thinking. Oh, good, a new podcast. The world needs that about as much as it needed a four-wheel drive Jeep that flips over easily. I'm not sure if it's what the world needs, but after leaving my job in sports media after 20 years, it is what I need. That is to say, some outlet to make content, which is, after all, what I've been doing all this time. My name is Andy Elric, and after 20 years at ESPN, CBS Sports, and a few other places, I've decided on an alternate path forward for the second half of my career. In the fall of 2019, I'll begin a PhD program at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, known by most people as RPI, though we will refer to it as simply the Institute. My degree will be in communications and rhetoric, but what really interests me and the focus of my eventual dissertation will be researching sports and sports fandom as cultural phenomena essentially to better understand why so many people care so much about grown men and women running around on fields and courts in brightly colored and numbered uniforms. These are people we most often do not know, but who constitute a critical and hugely impactful institution in the lives of millions, even billions of people worldwide. You could pretend it's less important than religion or politics, but you would probably be wrong. That's what Spirit of 74 is about. In each episode, we'll talk to a player, coach, executive, journalist, or fan born in the year 1974, note that's also the year I was born, about how they experienced the same world at the same age in vastly different ways and about how their sports fandom was both influenced by and influenced other parts of their lives. First up, we bring you the Jason Lockenfora walking tour of Baltimore, Maryland. Jason is a well-known and respected NFL reporter for CBS Sports, but you won't be hearing any insights on Ezekiel Elliott or the Dolphins' quarterback controversy here. Instead, we'll talk about Aunt Anita and Cousin Todd, about The Wire, H.L. Mencken, Camden Yards, his decade-long dalliance with Red Sox fandom, and our shared infatuation with owning a Suzuki Samurai. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Study of Sport and via my website, studyofsport.com. Stay tuned after the interview for a quick recap and a few other notes about the show. Here's Jason. Anyone who consumes sports media in America in 2019 is familiar with a, a genre of reporting and reporters known as insiders. These are journalists usually, not former players or coaches, and their job is to be on top of every storyline in the sport they cover and available at a moment's notice when news breaks, usually from their basement where the people who pay them have set up a small robotic camera and a transparently fake bookcase as a backdrop. Jason Lockenfora is one of the best known of those insiders. He's covered the National Football League for the Washington Post, the NFL Network, and currently works for CBS Sports, where, full disclosure, I was a coordinating producer until a, a short time ago. He also writes for CBSSports.com and is generally ubiquitous across every platform they have. He's as well-connected as anyone in the business. Uh, he has the fake bookcase, uh, but most importantly for our purposes, he was born in 1974, and I had his email address. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on Spirit of 74. Hi, thanks for having me, man. Uh, shout out to all the other 74s out there. Um, 
I looked it yeah, up. No, I, you've pretty much nailed. You pretty much nailed the little uh, bizarre sub subgenre that I reside in. So well, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. I was thinking about it bef- uh, this morning as I was preparing to do this, uh, thinking about insiders and trying to yep. sort of map in my I hate mind. That term, by the way, you do. What do you prefer? Just yeah, reporter? I just think it's just so kind of cheesy, and uh, I mean. Uh, uh, yeah, I would just prefer to be called an NFL reporter if they want to say, like, reporter at large or something like that. But the whole insider thing just rubs me the wrong way. But, I mean, look, it, uh, that's what everybody calls it, and it is right. what it is. Um, but I just – the connotation, I don't know. I've never really never really liked it, but it is what it is. Well, okay. Uh, we'll call it reporters. No, no, you got it. I mean, that's what they – I mean, that's yeah, what it says yeah. on my – well, if I still had right. business cards. That's <laughs> what it would say on my business card. Like, that's – yeah, that's what they pay me to do. Well, I was tr- – I just, ugh, I just don't learn. I, I don't know. I, even before I got into, you know what I mean, that yeah. side of it, I've always been like, that just strikes me as kind of cheesy. Like, but I'm old school. You know what I mean? Like, you're you're not supposed to be the news, right. and you're not. You know, like making the news isn't supposed to make the news. It's just the news is the news. But that's out the door. So what am I? Wow, what am I? You know, and an admirable. I would say I sound old, but everybody who's listening to this, I guess, is old too. So we're right. in it together. It's an admirable position to take, I think, in this day and age. But. I was trying to map out in my mind the history of like reporter, sort of national reporters, what, what we would call an insider now. When I started in 1998 at ESPN Radio, there were three guys that came to mind um, when I think of sort of that type of work. One is John Clayton. Gammons is obviously one of them. Yeah. I was thinking about NFL mostly, but oh, definitely. Oh, NFL. Gotcha. John Clayton was there when I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mort, who's who's still yep. still going. And I put in Mel Kuyper, a fellow Baltimorean, um, yep. although he's more specific to the draft. But it, yeah. when you when you think about, is that your memory of it? When you look back at sort of the progenitors of what you do now, who do you think of uh, yeah, in terms of I your Yeah, I mean, I would have Pascarelli in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- yeah, I mean, like, well, like for me, I can remember as a kid. Like I remember Jimmy the Greek. You know what I mean? So that was another and that one I was, was going Hybrid deal where it was kind of gambling and it was kind of inside information, and you weren't sure. You know what I mean? What who, what was coming right. from where? But you wanted to hear it either way. Uh, you know, I, I think don't you know? Better or worse, he's truly iconic, and I don't know that anybody. Although who knows with the state of of gambling in this country now? Maybe maybe there is some second iteration of him or somebody whose stick becomes I'm the new, you know, I'm, I'm the new Jimmy the Greek. Um, you'll not, you won't be able to get away with some of the things they got away with back then regardless. But yeah, I, 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 I kind of think of him. Um, you know, I, I think of, uh, I, you know, I love baseball as a kid, you know what I mean? So yeah. I think of Peter Gammons on that side of it as a guy who, mm-hmm. you know, went from having that notes page on the Boston globe to pretty much becoming, um, you know, the major baseball newsbreaker for a long period of time and a lot of the writers who were my closest mentors the guys who really took me under their wing when i was in college um buster only and kenny rosenthal were, were gammon's disciples um and that's where i really cut my teeth was in baseball reporting so you know I'll, that i mean i just remember the way those guys idolized gammon's and and you know talking to him in the press box every night and all you know call like literally picking up the press box phone and calling gammon's about this or that um yeah, and on the you know I think on the football side it it, it kind of goes back to to Jimmy the Greek for me and as a kid watching um, the NFL today 
and then certainly, yeah, ESPN took it to a whole nother level and, and sort of created that um, that year-round newsmaker position. Right. Jim, and Jimmy the Greek fit in perfectly with Brent Musburger because anyone who knows Brent Musburger even a little bit knows that he's very interested in Oh, he, he wants, he, he's all about that action. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And now he's even got yeah. the, that uh, channel and he's, uh, he's uh, got his own, yeah, the v- Las Vegas v- Network or whatever, whatever yeah. Yeah. which is actually a lot of fun to watch because it's him doing exactly what he's been wanting to do all along. Right, know, right. It's about like the he's unshackled now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we hope to talk about a lot in the show is context. Um, all the decisions, the choices we make in our life, the things we love, the things we hate, they're a big giant tangle of experiences and influence, and that, of course, includes where we come from. You are from the city of Baltimore, uh, yes, East, East Baltimore, or Highland Town, I guess, is the neighborhood? Highland, absolutely, yes. Can you, can you tell me yes, about indeed. what... Um, Describe that neighborhood for me, and what was it like growing up there? Um, for me, it was something of a utopia. I don't know that it would be that for everyone, but you know, we only have the one, you know, our, the one youth that we were granted. Right. And I, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, I mean, my parents had been in—I'm 45 now. My parents had been in the same row home um, in Highland Town for think they got that house 15 or 18 months before they had me mm-hmm. so they've been in there over 46 years uh we l- grew up i grew up across the street from patterson park one of the the, the bigger um parks in, in in all of baltimore and certainly the biggest in east baltimore and um we call it small tomorrow a lot of people who grow up in a certain zip code with all their cousins and you know their aunts and uncles and nobody ever leaves and that was sort of the case. I mean, I could go down two blocks down my street and my cousin Todd, who's a couple years older than me, you know, that was his house and, you know, Aunt Anita and Uncle Phil. And then I go, you know, half a block down, make a left. And I had the grand, my grandmother and grandfather on my mom's side on one side of the street. The other side of the street, I had my Aunt Carol um, and my cousin Tammy. And then I go a couple more blocks. Well, actually, for a while, my Uncle Ricky lived next door to my grandmother. So... I had, you know, I had like sort of this, this uh, infrastructure of, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins who, you know, they could all babysit and help out. And I had this, this amazing um, city park across the street with uh, like more baseball fields, more football fields, more soccer fields than you could ever want. Um, one of the few um, urban, well, at that point, it, it wasn't a year round rink because it was outdoor, but now it's, it's year round. Um, rinks in in all of Baltimore. So I hockey. grew up loving to skate, yeah, and loving ice hockey and and you know playing pickup hockey and all that stuff. Um, just sweat, you know, there was a pool there, there were tennis courts. So I was surrounded by sports, and I basically grew up in Patterson Park. I mean, we would wake up like I like Saturday mornings in the summer, like like I just we would wake up early, we would go to Todd's house, we would watch the baseball bunch in this week in baseball. And then we didn't come back in the house until somebody yelled at us, you know, whether it was my house, you know, my mom or my aunt Anita, until somebody yelled, like, come home for dinner. Like we would play wiffle ball in, in the alley behind his house. Then we would go to the park and we would play pick up baseball. And then we would go to, you know, a couple blocks North, um, like the, 
there was this other smaller park near the John Booth Rec Center, and we would play pickup soccer there. Um, we had the Virginia Baker Rec Center right in Patterson Park, so in the winter we would play indoor soccer there. Like there was, I mean, that was it. Like I, so I couldn't ask for anything better. You know, we would go corner stores everywhere. You'd go to the corner store and buy a pack of baseball cards and trade them or football cards. Um, you had cute, you know, great little pizzeria there. We had three, two, two movie theaters within a shoot, a less than a five minute walk of my house. Um, you know, it, it was great. There was almost like, a, uh, an urban shopping corridor right there. It's, it's not quite as bustling as it, as it used to be. Um, you know, you had to do a book report. You go two blocks down the Eastern Avenue, go to the library, you're, you're set. Like I, I loved it. I mean, we walked everywhere. Everything was accessible. Um, I, you need to go downtown for something. You catch the bus a block and a half from my house. I need to go, you know, I'm going to Memorial stadium. I'd walk up to Highland Avenue. I'd catch the bus in front of this hardware store that eventually became what David Simon used as prop Joe's sort of fake, um, you know, sort of office space slash, you know, front business in the wire. Like I would catch the 22 right there in, in front of, I think it was John's hardware at the time. Like you, I, I, you couldn't, you know what I mean? Like you yeah. couldn't, you couldn't have convinced me that anybody had it any better than me. Like it was, it was awesome, man. That's, that's what we did. We, you know, we played soccer in the fall and, and, you know, wrestled or, or basketball or indoor soccer in the winter and then baseball in the summer. Well, I was going to ask this question later, but you sort of walked right into it, so I'll ask it now. It seems like Baltimore has a sort of outsized place, given its size, in popular culture. You know, you've yeah. got, I mean, recently you've got The Wire um, and even like these serial documentary, you know, uh, uh, podcasts. You've got the famous um, some Barry Levinson movies. Uh, which are all yes. about Baltimore, John Waters, Hairspray is, was yes. in Baltimore. Do you, why do you think, is there something about your experience well, growing I, up that I, you I think, think makes it? I think that's part of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that's part of it. Like, you think you can take it all the way back to H.L. Mencken. You know what I mean? And, and you know, we, we can just sort of trace the lineage of Baltimore, and I guess you wouldn't have called it pop culture at the time, but Baltimore and the media and sort of, um, the romance of Baltimore, both positively and negatively. Right. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, with some of the people you mentioned and the stories they tell and how many of those stories trace back to to this area. And I think, um, you know, when I was a kid, you would have the, you had two different papers. You, you had the Baltimore Sun and the News American, and the Sun basically had two compete. They had a morning paper and an evening paper that com basically competed with each other. Right. So, you know, the, through the 70s and the 80s, like, it, it was like a full-blown newspaper war, and people were competing to get the best and the brightest reporters. I mean, they, they, I, I mean, I can remember as a kid, the Sun had bureaus all over. The, I, I, I think there's got to be a time where the Sun had as many bureaus as the Washington Post, yeah. you know, both domestically or internationally. And I think people just... I, I mean, it was like a thing. Like, who, who, like, do you subscribe to the Sun or the News American? You know what I mean? Like, I remember right. like going to, like different people's houses, and be like, "Oh, you guys have the News American? Like, what's wrong with you?" Like, <laughs> it was sort of embedded in the culture, and people, you know, it was it was like a thing. And like growing up, like, wow, if I could write for the Sun one day, that would be amazing. And I mean, at the time, I, I can remember being an intern there and sitting some summers, um, like just at a desk, whatever, working on a feature story. And like the collection of people around me, it, it was it was kind of staggering at mm -hmm. times. I mean, you would have like 
and it was a small newsroom. So like sports bled into Metro bled into like, you know, features and entertainment really easily. And I could be sitting within shouting distance of like JD Considine who went on to like, he was the, like, the music guy, mm-hmm. music critic who went on to write for years at Rolling Stone, Stephen Hunter's reviewing movies. Like mm-hmm. just Google him if you don't know who he is or who he became. Um, you know, we would have like, I, obviously David Simon and Rafael Alvarez and all these guys who went on to do, you know, homicide. And then eventually the wire, like it, it was, it was kind of nuts. Like you would just kind of spin around and, and do like a 360 and be like, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, people who went on to write best selling books. And I mean, it, it was, you know, I mean, I'm just saying I'm in a press box every night with, <laughs> I'm sitting between Ken Rosenthal and Buster Olney, right. who, you know, now are, I mean, I don't think anyone could think about baseball reporting in America without their mind, you know, without them immediately, you know, jumping to, to mind. And I grew up reading Tim Kirkagen and guys like that and Mike Litwin. Like, it was, I think a lot of it has to do with how unique the city is and how many people were either born here or drawn to this area or stumbled in this area for one reason or another and people who were more or less born to tell stories, you know, and I think that you can trace, I really do think you can trace the lore of Baltimore, you know, all the way back, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, Mm -hmm. H.L. Mencken and, and, you know, on from there to the present day. What was the sort of demographic makeup of your neighborhood at, at the time? My so the neighborhood now is very highly um, Latin American, Caribbean, um, a, a, like uh, a lot of Central American, Honduras, Guatemala. So so the the um, it's definitely the demographics have definitely changed. At the time I was growing up there in in the mid seventies, um, it was mostly uh, first or second generation Polish immigrants or Italian immigrants, um, mostly European. At that time, um, not my zip code, not too much of as much of an African American presence. Like, mm-hmm. uh, not you know, like Baltimore's small, so yeah. you know what I consider to be like my neighborhood. People would think, "Wow, dude, that's you know, Tiny. that's really small." Like, if you could walk five minutes in either direction and be in a much more, um, I guess, diverse area like the restaurant i grew up working in um as a kid O'Bricky's, a famous crab house where people i mean generations of my family worked there like we would go out like all the bus boys like would go out like whatever messing around after work and i would drop people off if i had a car or somebody else would and none of us would be going more than you know four minutes in either direction but the 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 sort of the, the denizens of that particular block could look completely different. If you had to pick, you've said you're a huge baseball fan. I know you still uh, uh, tweet a lot about baseball. You're a big Orioles fan, although we'll get into uh, a little foray you took, or actually quite a long foray you took into the fandom yeah. of, of another major league team. But growing up, who was the, what was the sort of prime, if you had to pick a primary local team that that was your obsession, would it be the Orioles? Would it be well, the Colts left in the mid eighties. So was, were the, was it all Orioles all the time or honestly it was, it was different. It was, it was Orioles. And then, you know, the, the Colts were really good in the late seventies and I was young and like, I have ticket stubs from like 78 and 79. 
Um, and I can remember, like, everybody, like, the town was abuzz with Bert, Bert Jones and Brooks Robinson. Like, that's what you would, that, mm-hmm. that's who everybody talked about. Like, that's who you would hear about. Um, but, you know, by, um, by the time I, like, can remember seeing Burke Jones play, like, he was he was broken down. You know, the, he, he had had his, his shoulder basically maimed by the Steelers in a game, and he was kind of trying to keep playing. But, but he wasn't the same. So, like, I, you know, my quarterback after that, we're talking, like, Arch Schleister and, like, Mike Pagel. You know what I mean? Like, the 81 yeah. strike short and Colts, and then the 82 Colts are just hor- horrible. And, and honestly, the whole – all the Elway stuff was going on right. at the time, and that was just people – and Baltimore so sort of inward and myopic to begin with, and we – you know, we're us versus them. And, like, the idea that this Stanford kid is going to, like, screw us over to go play baseball for the Yankees or, you know, wait to be drafted again in football or whatever. Like, I just remember that viscerally, like, people despising John Elway and his dad. Um, But, honestly, the team that – and then to the Colts – and and the owner of the Colts was just such a disaster. I mean, I can remember, like – at noon, they would break into a report and, like, somebody would have found Ursay drunk on a tarmac in Arizona. You know what I mean? Threatening okay. to move the Colts to Phoenix and, like, me turning to my mom and dad and being like, like, what is that guy saying? Because he was so fall-down drunk, you couldn't, you're like, you know, he was just literally slobbering all over himself. And you're like, like that that's the guy who owns the Colts? Really? So, you know, I kind of grew up and, and sort of started figuring out what it was to be a sports fan and what, what professional sports franchises, you know, can mean to a city or can do to a city through all that. And when the Colts left, we had a major indoor soccer league. And if anybody had grew up in an MISL town in a small market, not like the L.A. Lasers, you know what I mean, or the yeah. New York Arrows or the, the New York Blast, Arrows were dominant right? for a while. But yeah, so the Baltimore Blasts were huge. Like you, Baltimore Blasts, like there would be twelve thousand people in an eleven thousand seat arena, like on a Tuesday night against the Phoenix Pride. Like not even like, <laughs> you know, I'm not even talking like Cleveland Crunch, Pittsburgh Spirit, like one of our big rivals. I'm talking like whatever, like um, just you know, who, who, whoever was in town. Um, it was a big deal, and I think a lot of people kind of switched over there late fall and winter sports habits over to to the blast and then we had we always had a minor league hockey at the time um, although we haven't for quite some time so the clippers and then the baltimore skipjacks were a really big deal to me and, and i can remember going to those games in the in the um old eastern hockey league which i think basically they kind of base slap shot off of that league what they called the federal league i think was really the eastern league yeah. um and watching those games and then ultimately um you know, the American Hockey League and the Skipjacks being a, going from a Penguins affiliate to a Caps affiliate. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the youth was, like, focused on keeping the Orioles and the mayor and the mayor at the time, William Donald Schaefer, basically vowing to, like, not let this ever happen again. But there was sort of this overall sense of dread, like, you know, between Elway and between the Colts leaving and uncertainty about the Orioles and then people kind of trying to find these other things to throw themselves into. We even had a USFL team for one year. They won. I think they won the championship that year. But um, So, yeah, it was all these ancillary things. I remember going to Baltimore Lightning games. We had a CBA team. Like, I would just go to anything. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, let's go to anything. Oh, okay. Uh, Adrian Branch is in the CBA. Well, let's go out to Towson and see him play. I mean, I, def- I definitely remember going to a game at Towson Center. There was probably 412 people there. And it was like a, a, a kind of a snowy night. My dad and I were there, and I remember they played the Albany Patroons. Patroons. And uh, this Phil, F- this Phil, Phil Jackson, Jackson guy was yeah, yeah this Phil yeah. Jackson guy was their was their head coach. Yeah, 
Yeah, patroons are still going. I, I go to RPI, really? where okay. I go is is just north of Albany. They're still they're still I don't know what league they're in, but they have an unbelievable list of people that play played and coach there. Really, I mean the yeah, CBA was good like, basketball. That was like, there was no getting by the Albany patroons back then in the CBA. I remember that. Yeah, you mentioned um, the the mayor and the the Orioles thinking the stadium was too dilapidated. You, you, I think it's hard. People don't remember now how important the opening even to the country not just baltimore the opening of camden yards oh yeah was. camden yards was for years they, they had taken stadiums out of cities and moved them to you know industrial estates or parking parking lots outside of town they didn't exist in neighborhoods as they once did and camden yards changed that it was sort of it was a little bit wonky and strangely shaped it was in actual downtown baltimore sort of in a neighborhood that would have been i think when did that open 92 or 96 yes 92 i think it was it was the which would have been our senior year in high school what do you remember about camden yards opening i was there with my dad um he my dad was a was a barber and, and he cut the hair of a guy um Roy Summerhoff, who was like involved in the stadium authority. And then I think eventually sort of was, was involved in operations at Memorial stadium. And one day they, I, my dad came home and he's like, Hey, they're looking for people to help send out like to collate and send out season tickets. And he's like, do you want to do it? And I'm like, sure. So we, he, you know, he would, he would drive me or I would take the bus out to Memorial stadium and they had all these tables and like dot matrix printers, you know what I mean? Like old school printers set up in the visitors, in the visitors uh, clubhouse at Memorial stadium. And and they were literally in the process of transferring stuff from one stadium to the next. And what are we keeping and what we're not keeping and what's getting gutted and all that. And, so for like three months, I mean, I, it wasn't like a full-time job. I feel like I was probably out there two or three days, like maybe mm-hmm. like Saturday morning for a few hours and then like three, four hours a night, a couple nights a week, like putting together by hand people. I'm sure this is all electronic now. People's season ticket, you know, and this guy's yeah. got a 16-game plan. This guy's got an eight-game plan. And one of the perks was of the job because it wasn't. I, I can't think I was making, you know, yeah. <laughs> more than minimum wage. I guess I was making minimum wage. But you got a chance to purchase two seats to the first game at, at Camden Yards. Mm-hmm. So I did that job through the winter and got two club-level seats. And then, my, you know, my dad and I went to, uh, went to the first game. And, you know, Rick Sutcliffe and I remember Paul Sorrento um, hit the first home run at Camden Yards. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember the run-up to that vividly. Um, and whether or not they were going to keep the warehouse and whether this was, you know, to your point – um, about it being unusual, like how much do we want this to look like an extension of what's around it? Because that, you know, I think through the 70s and the 60s and, and most of my youth in the stadiums I grew up with, you know, it's kind of like somebody dropped an artificial spaceship in the middle of a lot. You know what I mean? No, in, in sort of downtown nowhere or, or not even say downtown, just nowhere, nowhere. And then things sprung up around it. So I can remember the debates about whether they needed to put it like near where Laurel Racetrack is now, sort of equidistance between here and D.C. to incentivize, you know what I mean, all the rich hoi polloi from D.C. to come down here because at the time the metro um, and the mark trains and all these commuter rails that um, are ubiquitous now, they they weren't as heavily used and and really a lot of it I don't think even really exists. I don't think the lines were anything close to what they are now with light rail and everything else. 
So, yeah, it was a real political hot potato. Um, and for them to have gotten it this right is is amazing. And it's weird. I was getting my hair cut, you know, around the corner yesterday, and the conversation turned to Kevin Yards and if, if the you know, what's going to happen? And there's all these rumors about maybe the Orioles are moving to Nashville. I don't, I don't buy any of that. I don't, I don't think there's any chance my God. that – that the Angelos family moves this team anywhere or does anything. But the lease is up. The lease yeah. is up in about 18 months or maybe a little more than that. So it's that is now a, a serious topic of conversation. I think it's somewhat misguided, but because of all this angst from the past, and you know what I mean, and yeah. people, you know, the, the, the kids my age were 10 years old, you know, 8 to 10 years old when, when the Colts left. You know what I mean? So it's not – it doesn't feel it's that real. long ago to me. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it doesn't feel that long ago to me. You, I want to do another podcast called The Crying Game where I talk to people about times that sports has brought them to tears. Oh, I wonder for you, for, me. Yeah. for you, with the Colts leaving, and famously, most of us have seen the footage of the Mayflower trucks. Yep, the Mayflower, yes, the night. Sir. Well, I watched it on WJZ Channel 13, yes. What was that like for you? Was it? Did you cry? That was was it emotional? That was surreal. That was I didn't and none and, and there was all this talk about eminent domain and let them do what they want because we still own the team. You know, like it was, it was. I mean, I guess it had happened before. Had Al Davis moved the Raiders once before? I mean, he moved the Raiders so many times. It was like you know, but I mean, at the time, it just felt like they they won't get away with it. At least to me, you know what I mean. In my ten year old mind, mm-hmm. it was like, well, they can do whatever they're trying to do, but there's no way the league's gonna let this happen. You know what I mean? Like. Right this just can't happen. Like it's the Baltimore Colts. There's no, you know what I mean? Like and guys like that, I mean, Lenny Moore, Artie Donovan, like all the Gino Marchetti, like those guys were ever present still in the community. I mean, a two minute drive from where I live now was one of Johnny Unitas's restaurants, the golden arm. Like Johnny Unitas was everywhere. Like there's like, there's no way like, no, I, at least, and, and again, I, I'm a young, dumb, naive, whatever, 10 year old. I'm like, this, this is like, this is all for show almost. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. didn't, and, and you had all these, oh, you know, there's going to be a press conference for this, you know, group of lawyers. And, and you know, Schaefer's got eminent domain and this and that and all these cards he could play. No, the the one for me that was instant, like, heartbreak, like, like you know, WTF was my cousin. I can remember my cousin Todd. I'm starting to get emotional. Just thinking about it, calling me and saying, put, in, put on Channel 13. And I'm like, what are you, what, why? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, bro, you live two blocks from me. Like, really? You got to call. He's like, dude, just put on, just put on channel 13, put on channel 13. He's like, Len Bias died. I was like, what? And that was, that was the one, man. Yeah. So he, um, he, he was yeah. Len Bias for people that don't remember was a, a standout at the university of Maryland. I have to say, I always sort of feel bad about this. I, I grew up in Vermont, but hated the Celtics. Oh, the Celtics angle? Yeah. I hated the Celtics, and I hated it made me so angry that they were so good and they got the number one pick. Yeah. And I remember feeling so terrible for feeling that way afterwards, you know, when he, he died of a, a drug overdose. Yeah. Um, and he was, uh, you know, you, I, you know, I hadn't even written him down as, as one of the things to talk about because I, I wasn't sure how big the university of Maryland figured in your youth sports fandom. Yeah. I mean, I grew up loving Maryland basketball. Um, and like Albert King was, was sort of the first Terps player that I really like thought was larger than life. And then Len Bias was, I mean, he was larger than life. And watching him 
destroy, you know what I mean, North Carolina. At that time, Duke wasn't quite Duke. It was more sort of Dean Smith and Carolina. And watching him just dominate Worthy and and Michael Jordan. But but there was so much buzz about him going to Maryland and then playing like – I can remember like when he like him playing in like the Capital Classic game or whatever they used to call it in, at uh, Landover at the old Capital Center, and like him coming in as a freshman and just being like, I mean, it was him and, and then Joe Smith like what what he did later on um, with the Terps, really kind of helping revive the program and finally getting them out of what was a tremendously long funk after um, you know the end of Lefty Drizel and and everything, all the ramifications of of Len Bias. But yeah, I mean, it was just. That 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 one was just crushing. Um, yeah. And honestly, I don't pay much. I, I, as I've gotten older in life, I've basically just come to disdain um, big money college sports. Like I take my kids to a lot of like Towson University baseball, yeah. and you know we we'll, we go to like I'll go to University of Maryland soccer games. Like I'll you know we'll do we'll go take my daughter to softball games. We'll go to Towson University girls soccer. Like I, I just have I I. I it, we could, you know, whatever. You, it's a somebody whole could do a nine, so, Somebody could do a 9,000-hour, you know what I mean, podcast on what truly is amateur athletics and what isn't. Right. So, yeah, I've just gravitated away from that over time. Like, I don't follow college basketball at all unless my son asked me to watch something with him. But as a kid, um, and, and especially those, those Maryland teams um, in the early to mid-'80s were, were huge. And – yeah, that was that that was you know that's one that I'll never like, I'll never ever ever forget like where I was and what that felt like and just how crushing that that was. And they were a team too with a, a coach who was extremely lefty Drizel, who was very unique. He was sort of spoke with this southern twang. He was a great, great storyteller. Jokes had lots of jokes. He was great. Uh, the, the, the reporters. I mean, I just remember. I mean, I would ask people. I mean, this is one where, like, so I get in the Sun newsroom and immediately, like, I'm, I, like, not immediately, but as soon as you sort of get comfortable and, you know, you, you get around certain people, like, yeah, you, they, you, would, you would just hear lefty stories left and right. And, but then also sort of horror stories about, you know, some of the people who were doing investigative work at the time at the Sun, because obviously that became the dominant storyline and for that entire sports department was, okay, you know what I mean? How endemic to the culture of Terrapins athletics is this? And, and um, you know, yeah. that that became sort of a whole subgenre of reporting as well. But, but yeah, Lefty was a larger-than-life figure who just spun these yarns and, and everybody gravitated to him. And he was, you know, one of the best recruiters ever. And... Uh, I, I don't know whether uh, I always kind of felt like, and the more I learned about it, I kind of felt like he paid a price that was, I mean, I, I don't know that, I don't know that he, I don't know that any coach was going to stop, you know what I mean? Len yeah, bias from yeah. doing cocaine that night. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just don't. And I don't know that any coach could have known how much he can or can't handle or the condition of his heart. You know what I mean? And whatever, mm-hmm. whatever medical, you know, predilections or, or, or situations or whatever was going on in his system that made him um, more vulnerable than anybody. Like, I, I just, I don't know that you could put, you know, College Park between Baltimore and D.C. at the height of, you know, crack rising to right. epidemic proportions. I don't know what coach was going to keep the entire Terrapins basketball team from dabbling in some recreational drug or another. Yeah, and he was fired more or less right away or he left right away they brought in a guy yeah i mean Bob it was Wade. it was yeah he it was, was a disaster 
Yeah, but that's a, like Dunbar basketball was another one that was huge. Like I can remember going watching some of those teams play, and like you couldn't get in a gym. I mean, you could you couldn't go like you couldn't go see the poets play unless you got there really really early or you knew somebody. Like that was another thing that was huge. So yeah, Bob Wade was in Baltimore. Uh, a huge figure at the time from coaching those Dunbar teams to the mythical national championships and Muggsy Bogues and, and all those guys. But like you talk about why ball, like, you know what I mean? Like this almost kind of brings me back to where you're like, why, why does this, why does Baltimore have this national resonance, like resonance, you know what I mean? And I think that's another reason, right? I mean, there, how many 30 for thirties have been done about this area? You've got the Colt, the one on the Colts band, you know what I mean? You've got Barry Levinson and all the fallout from that. You've got the, the, the one they did on Dunbar, you know what I mean, and the greatest team that ever was. Like, this just bit, it's just kind of crazy. Like, a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? Babe Ruth, the, you know, Babe Ruth was born here. Like, it's, there's just a lot of stuff for not that big of a geographic area. Well, I want to f- finish up by telling a dirty little secret about Jason Lock and Fora, which is that as big of a Baltimore guy as you are, I read somewhere that you – supported the Red Sox for something like 20 years in the middle of your life. How did that happen? You know, I, I was a huge baseball fan and I love to read about baseball. And the more I started to read, the more I started to read about Ted Williams and I became like a Ted Williams junkie. Like I, Mm -hmm. I just, I, I couldn't get enough. Um, his philosophies on hitting and, you know, just sort of his whole background and, what he went through as a kid and then what it sort of made him and what he made himself. And then as I'm, I'm a kid who's getting into like, who thinks his greatest calling in life, the thing he wants to do more than anything else is like to be a beat writer. You know what I mean? To cover yeah. a team every day. And then you had the whole subtext of his dynamic with the fans and the media, the media. and that yeah. whole love hate thing. And like the more I dug deeper, the more I just became infatuated. Um, so that really was the start of it. And I don't know, man, it, it's, it, it's like, I'd never disliked the Orioles. Like I would, I was one of those kids who would like go get autographs, you know what I mean? And so like, I would like a visiting team would come in and we go down to the hotel for a couple hours and get autographs. Then we take the bus out to the stadium and like Frank Robinson might've left us tickets or, you know, one of the players might've, might've said when you get an autograph, like we'd say, Hey, anybody using your tickets tonight? No, what's your name, kid? I'll leave them for you. We'll call. You know what I mean? And then we go to the game and you know, we get autographs afterwards. And that can't happen now. Home. That does not happen now. Does it? Players leaving random kids tickets. Does that still happen? I, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't, I don't I'd know. Like to but think like it, does, it was, but... It was not a it, like that was like it wasn't Jose Canseco who was doing it. You know what I mean? It, it, it might have been like, you know, Rene Gonzalez, but like it, it happened. I mean, it yeah. it definitely happened. Uh, so that was sort of like my sort of that's what my summers would be when I wasn't in camp or wasn't playing, you know, playing uh, sports or whatever. So like I just love baseball. Um, Always loved, you know. I, I never. I mean, I always. I liked the Orioles, but I. I became infatuated with with Ted Williams, and right at the time that was happening, Roger Clemens was coming up. Like that summer, like I can remember, like when he came up from Texas in '85, and kind of following that, and then '86, he. I mean, obviously, he, he strikes out 20 Mariners in May or whatever, and then this, you know, previously pretty shitty franchise for at least the last you know, since the end of the seventies, right. That was now sort of having this miracle season in 86. And I got caught up in that. And then for that to end, like, I think had the Boston Red Sox won the 86 world series, mm. I think it would have been a blip 
You know what I mean? Like looking back on it, I think it would have been like, oh, that was a cool summer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I would have gone back to the Orioles and they would have traded Eddie Murray still and I would have obsessed over that. And I probably would have wouldn't I don't think the Red the Red Sox thing would have would have blossomed the way it did. But to lose it that way and then to read more on into the history of the Red Sox, like to start reading about, you know, the sixty eight season and then, you know, Bucky bleeping dent, like reading yeah. about them more beyond just my sort of um, telescope into them through Ted Williams, it was just like, oh my God, you know what I mean? And then the Shaughnessy book comes out, and it's like, I just, I don't know how to explain it, man. It just, it just happened. I, I sort of became infatuated, and it became this thing. Like, well, I wonder if these guys, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if I'll ever see that. Like, I could follow them forever, and I wonder if, like, anything will ever come of it. And then they make the playoffs in 88, you know what I mean? And then they make it in 90, and they can't hit Dave Stewart. And it, it just became a thing where, um, you know, after high school, after I graduated, like my, my high school graduation present was my dad and I went up to Boston, and we you know, went to Family Park for the first time. But, like, I went up there to see them play against the Orioles, you know what I mean? So it wasn't yeah. – it wasn't <laughs> like, it was also – like, part of it was also like, oh, cool, I get to see the Orioles play at Family Park, you know what I mean? Yeah. So in my mind, like, I didn't think it had to be, like – one or the other, and I had no reason to believe also that only one was going to be relevant, you know what I mean, on a national stage beyond Cal Ripken for the remainder of my youth. Like, I didn't see that coming in 85. I mean, the Orioles had just been to the World Series. I kind of thought it would be like my side chick, you know what I mean, (laughs) or whatever. Like, oh, this is kind of cool, and, and like, I'm just really interested in it, and I don't know the history of it the way I grew up in Baltimore, knowing the history of all that. You know, and then so, yeah, the Ted Williams thing took me into Yastrzemski and took me into Dwight Evans and took me into Jim Rice. And so it just happened. And then they ended up, you know, they ended up having these unbelievable, you know, I mean, whether they were good or bad, they were never disinteresting. And I got into it. But at a certain point, I moved back home. Um, You know, I wasn't working at the Post anymore. We weren't living in Virginia anymore. Like, you know, we started having kids. And I was just like, I'm not raising my kids a Red Sox fan. You know what I mean? Like, why would I do that? Like, this thing happened to me. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to thrust it on them. Like, it just didn't seem right. Like, and I just sort of was at a point where, I don't know. Like, I just remember telling people one year, like, I'm done with them. They're like, I'm like, I'm not a Red Sox fan anymore. And they're like, what do you mean? What year are we talking about? Like, they didn't about? believe me. And I'm just like, what was, I'm sorry? What year are we talking about? Did you miss I, the World been, Series? Wins. I mean, this would have been. I feel like the 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 Bob the year that Bobby Valentine was the skipper. Like that team, and I didn't know at the time that it was gonna. You know what I mean? That there was gonna be all these like epilogues about chicken and beer. Like I just was like, I was I just was kind of losing interest. And so you you basically I, checked out just as they, <laughs> you checked in for all the suffering and then checked out right before they went on their they got really good in one world series. Yes. I was just like, I don't want to, like, I don't, I don't want to wear a Red Sox hat anymore. You know what I mean? I just was like, I don't want my kids to see that and think that they have to do that. And I love Baltimore and my kids love, you know, they're already from a young age. Like they want, you know, they, they enjoyed baseball and wanted to go to Camden Yards. And like my daughter was getting old enough. Like Chloe's 14 now. Like she was getting old enough to where she started knowing who players were a little bit. Um, the boys weren't really in the equation yet. 
And I just was like, this is, I just remember telling my wife, like, I'm just over it. You know what I mean? Like, I want to go back to my, like, I, I'm an, uh, you know what I mean? I have no, I just don't have any, that anything, like, the feelings I had as a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old and a 32-year-old or whatever, I'm just like, they're just not, it's not there anymore. And it's, it feels artificial to me now. And it feels like it's run its course. And, right. like, you got to understand, the Orioles were bleak. I mean, this was pre, like, this wasn't like, um, there was any – I had zero expectations that they were going to win the – you know, there's going to be a five-year span where they won more games than anybody in the American League. It right. wasn't – like, I didn't really care. It was like, I want to go to the ballpark and my kids get – all. you know what I mean? And they that's their hometown team. And I'll get – you know, help them get autographs the way I did as a kid. And, you know, have them grow up, you know, loving this thing that's such a big part of the city and, and this, you know, this ballpark that still is a jewel. So and, and it was people did people thought I was messing around, but it literally it felt totally natural to me. Mm. Like it, it, I just was like I don't really care about them anymore, and mm. I I don't know if that makes me a total weirdo or I'm wired differently. Like I can remember telling my brother-in-law and some of my best friends, and they're like bullshit. They're like when opening day starts the next year, like and then you know the Red Sox are good again. Yeah. They're like you're going to like it, and I'm like nah man, I'm giving all my Red Sox stuff away, like hats and stuff. You know what I mean? I'm like nah, mm. I, I'm trust me. I'm all in. And then my kids got older and they got more into it. And now, like, I despise the ball. <laughs> like, really, yeah. I really do. I, I don't know how else to explain it. Somebody should probably put me on a couch somewhere and have me talk to, uh, you know, a, a sports version of Ziggy Freud. But I, I have, I, I still like, I'm, I'm, I, I'm like, I'm still infatuated by like sort of Ted Williams and, him being larger than life and my kids being old enough now where like I can tell them stories about it or, you know what I mean? Start reading the parts of like, um, you know, uh, hub fans bid kid do and stuff like right. that. But yeah. I have no, I, I don't have any, it sounds like they you don't w- pull up my heartstrings in any way. If that makes any sense at all. It sounds like you went home physically and as a fan, you returned to Baltimore and you, you went back to the Orioles. Yeah, it was just like, it just feels silly. You know what I mean? Why I wouldn't be all in on the, you know what I mean? On this team I grew up with. Like, my kids, like, in their room, they've got, like, a pennant I have from 1979. You know what I mean? They've got ticket yeah. stubs from the 83 World Series. You know what I mean? It's just like, I, they've got old Orioles and Colts stuff that I wore as a kid. It's just like, right. I'm going full voice back behind this thing. You know what I mean? And I don't, this other thing, I just don't. It doesn't serve a, a purpose for me anymore. Well, Jason, I'm going to let you go, but f- before I, I do that, we play a quick, uh, we play a game at the end of every episode that's called Four for 74. It's okay. four quick fire questions that, uh, okay. where people of our age would have similar answers. So I'm going to ask you questions and, uh, and okay. just give me your best answer, okay? Okay. One, it's 1984. You're 10 years old and homesick from school. Are you allowed to watch TV? And if so, what would you watch? What's happening? Uh, no no, uh, no prices, right? No card sharks? You weren't into... I did like prices. I would like to... My mom... I can remember as a kid, my mom giving me like those those like plastic little bowls, like the orange plastic small bowls filled with Cheerios yeah. and sitting down on the couch and eating the Cheerios out of the bowl by hand and watching prices, right? I can remember doing that. <laughs> I don't know if I was sick or not. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. know if that was necessarily, you know, a sick thing, but I definitely vividly remember that. Okay. Well, I, I would have done prices, right? Card sharks nap through the soaps in the early afternoon. You're not interested in that. Then you can go right. 
Phil Donahue or Oprah. Press your luck would press, press your, your luck. luck sure, with no the whammies. Would that no have whammies. been on by 84? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been that would have been wheelhouse. Okay, question number 2. Describe in as much detail as possible your first computer. Oh god. Well, my cousin had a Commodore 64 and that was like when when Todd and Kurt and Michael got their Commodore 64. That was like wow. Like Man, and look at look at the amazing graphics on these baseball games. <laughs> wow, there's an MISL soccer game for this thing. So we we took it up a notch. We had had like word processors before, but we got the Commodore 128. Yeah, yeah. that was it. We we yeah we crushed with that thing. Very cool. Okay, that, dude, I think we had that computer for like a decade. Like, I think I was in high school still writing papers on that Commodore 128. Yeah, well, those were good computers. Those were, they were yeah. the sort of state of the art of the day. Yeah. Describe in as much detail as possible the first car you either owned or drove regularly. 88 Toyota Corolla. I had it all the way through college. Um, I covered a ton of minor, especially particularly minor league hockey in college, freelanced all over the place. Like, Oh, Providence is playing at a run back tonight. Um, they'll give me 25 bucks to write the story for, you know what I mean? The Providence paper, I'm there. So it pretty much fell apart somewhere probably on like I-81. Like I just remember like the muffler falling off one night going to Binghamton. Um, <laughs> I love that car though. I, I Yeah, I got it. Um, my dad got a great deal on it. It only probably had... I feel like less than like 15,000 miles on it at the time wow. he got it. And it was nice and small. And you have to understand Baltimore is all about parallel parking. Mm -hmm. No, I never grew up with a parking space or a driveway and everybody fought like sometimes literally fought to get a spot with, you know, somewhere on your block parking. Now we were lucky because we had to park across the street. So it's like we had other houses across the street that would then multiply the factor of competition by, you know, whatever exponentially. So, yeah, the Corolla was small. It was compact enough, but you could pile five or six people in there. Um, and I, I, I think I, I had that car. I finally bought, I bought a Volkswagen Jetta after I had been covering the Capitals. So for a few years at the Washington Post. I had, so I had the Corolla all – I mean, I had the Corolla in Detroit when I was at the Free Press, drove that back and forth. <laughs> and I think it finally died for good at some point when I was covering the caps for the Washington post and, uh, and then I got a Volkswagen Jetta professional. So wait, I got it. I think I got it. It couldn't have been an 88. I think it was an 86, 86 Corolla. 86. Okay. I think my dad, I think my dad got it around 89, 88 or 89. That's and then I started driving it 89 or 90. Mine was an 89 Mustang. Wow. It was, it was a coupe which is lame, right? It didn't have the hatchback. It had like a regular trunk. It was, oh. so it wasn't as cool as a regular Mustang. I can remember what I wanted. Like I, I, the car I was infatuated with and that I would beg for, but knew I was never going to get it. I think they later found was like, there was, it never should have got on the road in the first place. Like, I think it was like the, the, the Suzuki version of a Jeep. Samurai, the Samurai. 
Was it a samurai? I wanted or a, a samurai or a too. Kick, or a sidekick or something like this. There was a little Suzuki dealership we would pass on the way home from school, and I remember like being infatuated with these things. And then like I think Consumer Reports or somebody did this thing where they're like, never let yeah. you're like you're you're there's a, it's like literally a death trap. You didn't need Consumer Reports. I mean, you just had to look at the thing. It yeah, was like I mean, a, it, a it, tiny, it, tiny it little. Like if you blew it too hard, it would roll over. Yes. Yeah. Right. Last question: Professional wrestling, thumbs up or thumbs down? Baltimore Arena, numerous times. I I think we saw the first. I think we saw Hulk Hogan defend his title after after he got he got it back from the Sheik at Madison Square Garden, and then I feel like that like you know because Baltimore we were logistically pretty close to that, and I think I think we saw his first title defense at the Baltimore Arena, or it was shortly after he won it again against um, Paul Orndorff. Mm, but Mr. yeah, big time. See, Mr. Wonderful wrestling. was that Mr. Wonderful? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it, that was huge. Uh, we only went to WWF, although I, I did follow like NWA and that stuff. But mm-hmm. we we never went to see them for whatever reason. I think because my mom and um, I had it would be a bunch of us. Like we had, we would like sneak Italian subs in and stuff. Like it was a whole <laughs> big thing. Like where we would make all this food beforehand. It would be like me, my brother, my mom. My uncle Vito, um, my cousins Mark and Teddy. Um, I feel like my aunt Mary might have gone a couple of times, and yeah, it was. There was a good card at the at the Baltimore Civic Center. Um, we we were there. Oh, big time! And then like you know, and then like and then it got kind of too big and too crazy and too jingoistic and all that. And I grew up a little bit, and then I didn't follow it forever. And then a few years ago, probably it's probably been five or six years now. My kid, I stumbled into NJPW and kind of watched a little bit with that. What's NJPW? Kids. What's that? Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Oh, oh, I have a friend that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is but that on television or what? That, where do you watch you. that? It was it was on Cuban Mark Cuban's channel, Axis or whatever they call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but then all the like all the guys we really liked left there and splintered into like other wrestling things, and now we don't even really watch that anymore but yeah as a kid big time it was huge i mean i remember when cbs started you know the full-blown like they had their own hour-long cartoon and everything but yeah hulk hogan sergeant slaughter uh mr wonderful paul orndorff roddy roddy piper like yeah that was that was was big stuff coco beware was my favorite coco oh he had the best theme man yeah had a good finishing move too. the ghostbuster it was called yeah no i just remember coming out to like morris J in the time Yep. Yeah, no, that I like Coco Beware. Um, absolutely. In fact, I still like, I will call my daughter sometimes, her name's Chloe, I will call her Clo-Clo Beware. She has no <laughs> idea why, but she doesn't really hate it. You know, and if you have a 14-year-old daughter and she doesn't totally despise what's come out of your mouth, then it's been a good day. You've done a so, good yeah, thing. I will call her Clo-Clo Beware quite often. And she, again, she has zero, she, has, she would have no idea why. Jason Lockenfora of CBS Sports. Jason, thanks so much for visiting with me. I really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy your summer. You do the same. Thank you. So the thing about interviewing is that it's really, really hard. Just ask uh, Robert Caro or Dick Cavett or Oprah Winfrey or somebody like that. 
uh, professionals have been doing it well for a really long time. I'm not particularly good at it, mostly because it takes years of practice that I haven't put in, though I suspect I might lack some natural ability as well. I'm hoping to get better, though, as this little project moves along. It's one of the reasons I'm doing it. A big part of my research is going to, is going to be ethnographic, which means a lot of interviewing people and talking to people about their lives and their fan groups. And part of uh, doing this podcast project is to just get more comfortable talking to people, although those interviews won't be shared publicly like these are. It's just a, a way for me to, to get more comfortable asking people questions and sort of getting them to dig down deeper into their lives. Um, there's parts of this interview we just do with Jason that, you know, I think I over prepare a little bit and sometimes stick too rigidly to my questions instead of that I've written down ahead of time instead of um, reacting to what he's saying. Fortunately, when you interview someone like Jason Lockenvora, who's very comfortable being interviewed, um, he's just extremely chatty and, and well-spoken, and so I think it was a worthwhile exercise in that regard. One of the things uh, I hope to do each week or each time we do these podcasts is to link each interview to some scholarly work out there. Not that you should necessarily go out and read them, but just to understand that there are people out there thinking about these things deeply. We talked with Jason uh, at some length about Baltimore and popular culture, um, The Wire, and the films of uh, Barry Levinson, the first of which was Diner. Um, there's a, a professor at George Mason named Paul Haspel who wrote uh, a piece in 2009 in the Journal of Sports Literature titled Baltimore Colts and Diner Guys, Pro Sports Fandom and Personal Identity in Barry Levinson's Diner. And it talks a lot about the things we'd be talking about on this podcast, namely the sort of tribal aspects of fandom. Although the bigger theme is um, is encapsulated in one of the characters named Eddie, who's uh, supposed to be getting married at the end of the film and has decided to give his uh, fiance a Baltimore Colts uh, quiz, which she must pass in order for him to marry her. So if she gets below a 65, he will pull out of the marriage and not marry her. She gets 63, he gives her the extra two points uh, on a sort of technicality and they do end up getting married. But it's a, it's a, one of the more well-known themes of the movie is this Baltimore Colts quiz. He also talks in the piece at length about scenes that were cut out of the movie but are in the original screenplay that take place uh, at the 1959 NFL championship game, which was the first and only NFL championship game to take place in Baltimore between the Colts and the Giants, which Baltimore won 31-16. to It was their second straight title. Uh, they won it the year before in 1958 in what is widely known as the greatest game ever played. Uh, and for most historians of the NFL, it sort of marks the beginning of football's ascension to eventually becoming America's most popular sport. It's a really interesting piece. If you want to look it up, the uh, author's name is Paul Haspel, H-A-S-P-E-L, and he's a professor at George Mason University. Reminder that you can connect with me through Twitter and Instagram at Study of Sport and on my website, studyofsport.com. Any 74s out there with memories of their own fandom or things they want to share can hit me up there. You know what, if you're not a 74, you can share your memories as well. Uh, if you're a fan of Polish television and Polish family dramas, you'll definitely want to tune into the next episode. We're going to talk to an actor named Andre Nieman. The story of how I found Andre, who lives in Warsaw, where he's a actor, a director, and producer at a theater there, is an interesting one. And I'll share it on the next episode of Spirit of 74. Thanks again to Jason Lockenfora. We'll see you next time.